1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with
2: every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever
0: you get your podcasts.
1: ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory tension, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one topic at a time. I'm Rob Duboff, Senior ESG Analyst, your host for today's episode. Washington, D.C. has become an interesting place for investors between the Biden administration's whole-of-government approach to tackling the carbon transition, a tighter regulatory focus on climate and ESG disclosure from the SEC, and a growing pushback from Republican politicians. Today, we're joined by Congressman Sean Kasten, representative from Illinois' 6th District. Congressman Kasten serves on the House Financial Services Committee and the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. He also co-chairs the Congressional Sustainable Investment Caucus. Welcome, Congressman.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Also joining me today is our own man in Washington, BI Senior Policy Analyst, Nathan Dean. Nathan is responsible for analyzing financial policy decisions in the U.S. and their impact on capital markets. And just as importantly, Congressman Nathan, a native Chicagoan, has informed me his mother is one of your constituents. Thanks for joining, Nathan. Great. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Representative Kasten, I guess the big question we had is why is climate change such a big issue for you?
0: Um, I, I don't know how it couldn't be a big issue for anybody who's paying attention. Um, I, I grew up, my my dad was an early clean energy guy. Um, he actually built the third perpa plant in the country. If you uh, For those of you who, that's a deep cut for those of you who are energy nerds, 1978's Public Utility Reform Policy Act. So I grew up around it. But the numbers are just shockingly scary. Fifty percent of all the CO two we have ever emitted as a species has been since I graduated from college in 1993. That is just a shocking number. We are so far above where we need to be. The last time CO two was this this high, sea levels were three, four, eight meters higher. Um, There is no question that that's what's coming. The scientists debate on the time, but we're seeing the effects of that already. We're fairly certain we're going to see two feet of sea level rise in the Gulf Coast by 2050, which means that homes on the Gulf Coast today will be underwater before their mortgage is paid off. Um, The wildfires are the new normal. And the good news is that we have tools. We can have our cake and eat it, too, because our energy system is so inefficient. We can actually massively reduce our CO2 impact and leave more money in our pocket. We haven't done it historically because our energy policy hasn't, hasn't incentivized that, but we can fix that.
1: But man, we're out of time to deal with it. And I
0: dedicated my adult life first in the private sector to working on that and
1: now in Congress. Absolutely. But should financial markets have a role in, in tackling these issues? And should government even be involved in this process?
0: Um, I think when we ask financial markets to be moral, we misunderstand the purpose of financial markets you know, the financial markets are not moral, they're not immoral, they're they're amoral. They exist to to allocate to you know allocate capital and price risk and reward. I think there is a government role to make sure that where there are externalities that aren't priced into the way markets operate, we have an obligation to do that. And and to be clear, in the case of ESG, this has really been a market-driven phenomenon. You know, the eight point four trillion dollars of assets under management in the ESG space is not because some government king mandated that this would happen. It was because a whole lot of investors took a view, which one can agree or disagree with, but there's $8 trillion of investors who have a view that they would rather have their money parked with somebody who is taking a longer-term view, isn't just focused on this quarter, is not only addressing environmental issues, but has more diverse boards, has better governance protocols, and... Within that, there has been a need, um, which I think is an appropriate regulatory need to say, if if investors want to have access to ESG products, we should make sure that we have a clear definition of what that means so that there's no, that people can't take advantage of investors. And I think that's been a problem. And that was initially why we formed the ESG caucus. Um, but markets will do what markets will do. Our job as regulators is just to make sure that the, that the externalities are priced in and that there's appropriate disclosure and investor protections.
2: So, Congressman, I want to ask a question about the financial regulators. You know, we've seen the U.S. financial regulators, especially, you know, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, embrace climate change as some of their top priorities Some of the initiatives out there is the SEC climate change disclosure proposal, which for listeners would require all public filers to disclose climate change risks above what they already disclosed in terms of material risks. But we've also seen some things come from the Federal Reserve in terms of the climate change pilot program. You know, do you agree with these proposals? Do you think the financial regulators have... Got struck the right balance? Have they gone too far? Not enough. I mean, I think if we were to interview one of your colleagues from the opposite of the aisle, the House Financial Services Committee, they'd give one opinion on the SEC climate change rule. But I'm curious what you also think what the Fed should be doing uh, and whether or not they should be doing more.
0: Well, so I think there's two separate sets of issues with respect to the SEC. We have a draft rule. We don't know what's going to be in the final rule, and I want to be—I hes- don't want to get over my skis and commenting on a rule that hasn't been written yet, or released yet. But there is a completely legitimate issue that you know, as of right now, there's no correlation between any of the ESG rating funds' rating of any given company and how another ESG rating fund might rate them. And that's not because the companies are bad; it's because there's no consistent standards. Um, And so if you just look at the carbon piece, we need good accounting. You know, as an an example that I'd give is saying, let's suppose that you have a company that builds wind turbines and you sell those wind turbines to another company that owns and operates wind power assets. And the company that operates those wind power assets sells their, their zero carbon electricity to a steel mill what is the carbon footprint of each of those companies? Do they all get to count as zero carbon companies? Is it only one of them that does? How does that get apportioned? And if you are an investor who has a desire to minimize the carbon footprint of your portfolio, whether for moral reasons or economic reasons, how do you decide where to invest? And there's no right answer to that question, but there's a need for standardization. And I think what the, the process the SEC is trying to solve is saying, if I want to understand where are the greenhouse gas emissions in my portfolio, who's accountable for it, who bears the risk, we need to have consistent sets of rules. And I've, I've always viewed what the SEC is doing as trying to develop that consistency. We can, we can argue about, did they get the implementation right? Do we think they should have factored into, should they have tweaked it? But that's a real issue. And we can hide our head in the sand if we want, but meanwhile, Europe is marching forward. And to talk to multinationals in the U.S. who are saying, look, I have operations around the world. I have to come into compliance with a European regulatory scheme. Would you prefer that the United States be a leader and have a seat at that table or say we're just going to do whatever Brussels says? And I, I, I personally am kind of fond of our country and I like to see us in a leadership position. Um, that may be partisan, but you know, it's, <laughs> that's who I am. Yeah, so the, the Fed is, I think, a separate one, which is really hard. Um, and it's hard because I don't think anybody has the mandate to ask the right question. What the Fed, you know, the Fed's mandate, um, such as it is, is really around the stability of our financial system. And as we saw in 2008, if, if the financial system hedges out their risk by moving that risk onto a non-bank like, like AIG in 2008, all of a sudden, our regulatory structure isn't monitoring that anymore. Even though market participants may well be aware that there's still risk in the system, and I, I'm glad that the Fed is starting to acknowledge that that climate risk and financial risk have a strong overlap between them. You know when that. When your community is on fire, when your community is underwater, when there are sudden, you know, hailstorms at weird times of year, when you can't get insurance for your home anymore, that has real financial impacts that ultimately ripples into the financial system. I'm personally, I I think the Fed, by only focusing on on the big banks and by limiting it to sort of a more of a Dodd-Frank stress test kind of construct, instead of saying, we really want to look at where is the money moving in the system. You know, I, I prefer a scenario analysis than a stress test approach, because I think it is appropriate that our financial regulators should be saying, where is, where are the pockets of risk in our economy and where is there potential defaults that we should be worried about? And just because... A certain risk has been insured away, and then the insurance companies have passed it on to a reinsurance company. And then all of a sudden, insurance company X says, "I'm not going to carry this risk anymore and put it on consumers." That doesn't mean the risk doesn't exist in the economy; it just means it's not in the banks. And and so, you know, I've I've personally been advocating both through bills we've done with Brian Schatz and with and with Senator Feinstein that we should have the Fed take a more holistic look at the banking sector. But then an even broader look to include the non-banks to really understand where is this movement of capital in our society so that we can better understand who do we need to protect? Um, let's let's get ahead of this problem and not wait until all of a sudden everybody's calling in for disaster supplementals and
1: more money for FEMA. Great. And I know you didn't want to comment too much on SEC rules, but do you think scope three is important information that investors need to have? Um.
0: Yes and no. Um, there, are, there are different views within the both the environmental and the financial community about whether double counting matters in the greenhouse gas space. I, I personally have the view that I think, I think a good carbon accounting system should be much like a good financial accounting system where one party has an asset, the other party has a liability. They balance each other out and I can monitor where all the greenhouse gases are in the system. The in a world where everybody reports, Scope 3 is redundant and duplicative, and, and we don't need it to be there, right? The, the oil company, all of their Scope 3 emissions are downstream. There are folks like you and me who drive cars. Um, and if we're reporting as well, then we, the Scope 3 is duplicative. For reasons that are obvious in that example, it's really hard to get full economy-wide reporting. And so my view, and and this is my view, I'm not saying this is a view that's shared by everybody. I'm not even sure this is a view shared by the SEC. My view is that we probably should have scope three in the interim, and then some recognition that over time, as we get more economy-wide reporting, that we can get a better handle on the CO2, you probably phase that out over time. Um, That's not everybody's view, but I think if you share my view that, that the overall accounting system should account for all the carbon in the system. Um, Then I think scope three is a transition question, not a permanent question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, you know, I have very similar thoughts. It's just the issue I think um, will always be that, you know, you mentioned, you know, SEC, if, if they're only regulating public, if they're only regulating public disclosures, what happens to all the private suppliers up and down the supply chain? And, you know, how, how can we get more consistency there without being in a, kind of an undue burden? I think that's really the challenge that the SEC has currently.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And I and I, I I can both acknowledge that challenge, but also say that it's not really that much different from financial accounting, right? You know, I mean, only, only public companies have to have fully audited financials. And yet every company that dreams of one day going public has fully audited financials. And and so I think those standards do have a way of rippling through. Um, You know, one of the places where I think I as much as I am a, you know, I'm as strong on environment as any of my colleagues, but I do part company with some of them that I don't really think the purpose of greenhouse gas reporting is to name and shame polluters because we've all got agency in the process. I, I do think that it's important to have that number so that markets who are trying to allocate risk understand where the risk sits and how to and where they can hedge that away and it's impossible to do that right now um, which is why I think you need you, you need you need more rather than less right now and then we can sort out some of the some of the complexities and double counts as we evolve yeah
1: absolutely and I think a big Piece of that also is pricing carbon which you know given the the, the state of the, the carbon markets currently the you know the the patchwork of voluntary and in, in different regions mandatory um true. You know, regimes it kind of makes it very difficult currently and i know that's something that um i believe the cftc is looking at as well
0: yes quite true i've got a bill i've been trying to get on that for a long time as well
1: great so uh, you know obviously climate's very important but are there other ESG issues you think the administration should be tackling?
0: Um, you know, I think the challenge with ESG and why it's become so political, and I, and I wish we could sort of have this conversation in a way that wasn't politicized, although I don't know entirely how to do it, is that you have seen an enormous flight of capital towards things that you can wrap a ribbon around it and call it ESG, although I don't think it's just limited to people who are who want to have an ESG fund. Um, Tesla is trading at a much higher multiple than GM is. First Solar is trading at, a, at an order of magnitude higher molar multiple than Exxon is. Capital markets are telling those companies that we, we have more confidence in your ability to provide what markets want 10, 20 years from now than we do in those companies that are providing yesterday's technologies. That in turn is creating a massive flight of capital. Back to the things that I think the Fed should be monitoring. Away from the historically extractive regions of our country, towards those parts of our country where people depend on cheap energy. Right? If if I can if I can put a solar panel on my roof, and if I can put an electric car in my driveway, and I can put a you know a geothermal heat pump, all of a sudden I don't have a gas, electric, or gasoline bill anymore. But I could, but if I could do that, it was because I had the capital provide to make those initial investments. And now there's a whole bunch of folks in the oil patch and you know, the coal belt in Appalachia where their economy is falling apart. And, and frankly, we're seeing that. The West Virginia economy is not in a good shape. That tension, I think, in turn is creating a lot of dislocations that are going to accelerate over time. And the best way to address that, if you if you agree that most of those tensions are being driven really by the E of ESG, the, the best way to protect it is through the S and the G. How do we make sure that the folks in those communities have a voice? How do we make sure that we have governance structures that are not leaving those communities with black lung disease or with you know, bankrupted out of their obligations to restore the land to its original condition. Those are questions about the, you know, the social and governance ends of ESG. And we should be looking at those issues if we care about those people, if we say that you're all Americans. Once we make it partisan, it becomes this fight between red and blue America, which I don't think does any of us a, a, a service. Um, um, and so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one for leaning in, leaning in harder on these issues but leaning in in a way that says we're all in this together.
1: Great. Uh, you know, you mentioned the red and blue divide, and you can't really talk about ESG these days without addressing the backlash. Uh, your Republican colleagues on the House Financial Services Committee declared this past July to be ESG Month, which was supposed to be a coordinated attack on sustainable investing, and yet the month came and went without anything really changing. Why was ESG Month? such a failure in your opinion.
0: Well, I'd like to take credit for making it a failure, frankly. (laughs) You know, when Juan Vargas and I, Congressman Vargas and I started up this Sustainable Investment Caucus at the end of last term, because of all the things, you know, all the good meaty policy issues we've been talking about, how do you make sure that there's consistent rules? How do you understand the, you know, where the capital flight is going? We didn't do this to be partisan, but then you had this, this real pushback from extractive America, which sort of looks like red America. There's a strong overlap in that Venn diagram, um,
2: -hmm.
0: to say we, we are really nervous about the fact that, you know, capitalism red and tooth and claw is leaving us behind. And so we want to stop our state pension funds from being able to allocate their capital in ways that they, that they think is most beneficial. We just want them to preferentially allocate their capital, um, you know, in extractive America. Um, that's pretty, you know, pretty antithetical to all principles of free market capitalism. Um, as I, as I mentioned many times during our hearings, you know, Milton Friedman and the whole theory of shareholder primacy is rolling over in their grave at some of this silliness. But, but it became a thing, and thankfully, Congressman Vargas and I, because we had set up this caucus, because we had some terrific staff who had really done the research and brought in the speakers. We were in a position to, I think, really arm a lot of our Democratic colleagues, both in the Financial Services Committee and on the Oversight Committee, with 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 some depth of understanding of the issue that I think um, made us much more prepared for the for the silliness that was to come. You know, I mean, I think when we had when one of our when one of our hearings in Financial Services devolved into whether uh, whether the republican view of blocking investor choice had more in common with with trotskyism or or more eastern versions of mao Zedong's versions of communism like you knew you were winning when that was the fulcrum of the debate (laughs) but but there is something very strange about the you know the nominally free market party saying Um, you know, we have a real problem with the proxy process. We don't want investors to have information and we certainly don't want to allow them to invest in certain things. And I think that position became increasingly untenable for my colleagues across the aisle to defend.
1: Yeah, I feel like everything's kind of turned upside down the last year. I mean, you had an energy crisis where, you know, on your side of the aisle, you know, you had folks advocating, you know, oil companies instead of, um, you know, paying out Shareholder returns; they should be reinvesting the capital, which is the equivalent of, um, you know, Democrats saying "drill, baby, drill," <laughs> um, and then you had, um, you know, Republicans basically saying, you know, we need to tell companies how they can and can't invest. Um, so it, well, there's I, a lot of well,
0: I think I think the thing. I think the tension in both of those, and it's it's what I said about the capital flight that I keep coming back to, is we're in the middle of a massive wealth transfer from energy producers to energy consumers, um, in In 2020, you all remember how painful it was when the oil price was really low, how much you suffered, how hard that was for you to get by when the price of gasoline was so low in 2020. (laughs) Um, I I know you do, right? Because if you recall, um, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana introduced a bill that threatened to pull U.S. troops out of Saudi Arabia unless the Saudis cut back on oil production to raise the price of energy. That led Donald Trump to call the Saudis, make that same threat, and it led the Saudis to cutting back on oil production and raising the price of energy. And, and Trump was, was heralded by, by a lot of the, you know, the business um, media for protecting our nation's oil producers. When the, when the price of oil went through the roof... Myself, Tom Malinowski, and Susan Wild introduced a bill that said, we should pull our troops out of Saudi Arabia unless the Saudis agree to ramp up production, right? It, we, we literally yeah. cut and paste the language. Senator Cassidy issued a statement saying, that's not how energy markets work. You're just not as sophisticated. That's not how it happens. And of course, the Saudis didn't do it. But, but the question was, are we rooting for the interests of energy consumers who would like to have cheaper energy? Or are we rooting for the interests of energy producers who would like energy to be more expensive, and that's that's a sadly partisan debate. But it's the reality, the the fact that in those two years that went from being one party advocating for raising the price of energy to another party advocating for lowering the price of energy, kind of highlights the challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, full disclosure, I used to be an oil analyst. Um, in my prior life. And you know, I, I definitely under, appreciate the, you know, the, the trickiness of the transition that on, on the one hand, you know, as much as you know, there are folks out there that want to stop using oil tomorrow, though, there's a lot of people that rely on cheap and reliable energy that you know, renewables at this stage can't really provide. So just kind of negotiating that and, and trying to find the middle ground, which I think is, um, no offense, has become increasingly more difficult in, in uh, Washington these days.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, look, you're talking to a guy who spent 20 years building power plants that were twice as efficient as the electric grid um, using really, really old, um, long time, long off patent technology. Um, I would challenge the assertion that you can't have cheap energy and clean energy. Um, But in order to do that, you have to be focused on the downstream end where consumers are, not the upstream end where the, where the oil wells are. And those interests are just different. Um, And Yes, the transition is hard. Yes, we have to acknowledge that there are communities that have historically depended on those jobs. But you know, the, the U.S. only generates half as much GDP per million BTU of primary energy as the as the UK does. That's that's an embarrassment, right? If our labor productivity was half of the UK's, we'd be having a, we'd be having a come to Jesus conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems like um, you know, ten years or. Ago- Twenty years ago, um, you know, oil prices—the only way you can find oil is deep water offshore—and then innovation came and and led to cheaper energy. And you know why that can't be replicated again. Um, again, it's not always easy making that transition, but you know we've been known to do it throughout history to to innovate to to drive um, you know better energy solutions. So do, I guess. In terms of uh, what the future may hold, do you think the Republicans are going to try something else? Is there another tack they have up their sleeves?
0: Uh, so that's a question for them. I I think they've probably run that as far as it'll go. I think that I think the question about what we're going to do now, as far as things that will affect capital markets, will obviously be waiting on what the you know what the SEC does. I think from the from the Congress, I am, I I hope we can do something on permitting because it it. It just once again highlights this tension between the upstream and the downstream end. And for us to realize the goals of the IRA, for us to make sure that people have access to cheap energy, we've really got to de-bottleneck our transmission system. Um, Whether we find a way to get there, I think will depend. Um, But I think right now everybody's focused on trying to avoid a government shutdown if we can, make sure that we get our appropriations done. And I suspect that will be the priority for the next few months.
2: So, I have to ask a question about hot FERC summer. I think we have to ask that question. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, I highly advise you to go see Representative Kasten's YouTube video where he gave a speech on the floor and either you or one of your staffers put a nice little drum beat behind it uh, where you talked about hot FERC summer. Obviously, the song uh, to Mega a Thie Stallion. And then, obviously, I think last year you tried FERC Alicious, you know you know, can you just give us like the backstory of how'd you come up with that? You know, your intention was to bring more, you know, uh, publicity to what was happening at FERC, you know, one of the more important energy regulators. And, uh, you know, what was the reaction you got from some of the other, uh, folks on the Hill? Well, you've,
0: you've left off FERC and nine to five and FERC, 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 the famous Rihanna song. We'd, we'd had four of those in total. The, uh, You know, there was a very serious part of this that I I am firmly of the opinion that FERC is the most important agency to decarbonize our electric system. Um, When when people say that our electric grid is you know cleaner than it's than it's ever been and we decarbonized, that's largely because of early '90s vintage FERC orders that led to um, you know reforms in the natural gas sector and the nuclear sector and really decarbonize our system because for the first time markets could make money by saving money in the power sector. it's a decidedly unsexy agency. There's no way to get credit for it. And we were chatting in the office about how do we put constructive pressure on the White House and the Senate to prioritize appointments, get this agency to be fully staffed and not devolve into things. And I forget how it got there, but somehow we got to talking about the lyrics to Hot Girl Summer. And there was a sort of a dare in the office that for those of you who know the song, it is it is <laughs> not... Uh, it is not appropriate language to use on the floor of the house, shall we say? <laughs> and so there was something of a dare in the office that said, all right, if you can write a floor speech to the words of, of hot girl summer, that's make it hot for summer. That is acceptable to do on the floor of the house. Then I will pretend to be Megan Thee Stallion and wrap it. And, uh, and I didn't think that I was going to have to carry out the end of that bet, but the team really came together and made something happen. And, you know, it, I think at one point it was the top trending story on people, you know, which is, uh, you know, I'm no no AOC. I'm not used to going viral like that, but it it sort of became a thing and we had to keep doing it for a while. And, uh, you know, were we successful? I don't know. We made a lot of friends at FERC. Um, FERC is still understaffed, so we still got work to do. But uh, I will continue to humiliate myself in the name of giving our kids a cleaner climate, if that's what it takes.
2: Do, do you still have the poster that you brought down onto the uh, floor? Is that?
0: Oh, not only not only do I not only do I have the poster, but certain FERC commissioners, uh, who I, I think, in the interest of respect for them, shall remain nameless, have come by our office so that they can take selfies with the posters. Um, these have become i i I'd, I'd like to believe that someday the national archives will want to hold on to these as a piece of piece of a uh, piece of american history
1: <laughs> that's amazing sticking on the topic of of infrastructure and permitting reform I, I think maybe i'm oversimplifying but to me it seems like there's an issue here where uh the left doesn't want to make it easier to permit new fossil fuel projects but the right doesn't want to make it uh easier to permit renewable infrastructure you know, without any kind of reform, very little gets done. Is there possibility to find a middle ground here?
0: Um. So there, there is a challenge, and I think I think at the highest level, you've characterized it correctly. Um, I, I think that the, and and look, I, I say this as a guy who was in the energy industry for twenty years. It is not that hard to permit fossil fuel infrastructure. We tell a good story about it, but you know, look at. You know, we we built 200,000 megawatts of combined cycle gas turbines over just 10 years in the 90s. We did it not by running transmission out to where the gas fields were. We did it by running gas pipelines to where there was a transmission interconnect because it's it's way easier to build gas pipelines in this country than just to build transmission. We also, in terms of a demand perspective, US coal demand is down 40% from where it was a decade ago. Oil demand is basically flat from where it was a decade ago. Gas is up, but is growing much slower than the, rate of, than the rate of growth in the economy. And so if you are a fossil fuel producer in this country, your only real play to grow your industry is through exports. And so on the one hand, the advocates for the fossil fuel industry are trying to make it easier to build, not pipelines, but LNG terminals to export, right? Um, more oil export facilities. And those have some challenges. Um, in part because that's a harder conversation to sell to people. Um, you know, should we you know, put a well in your backyard and put a pipeline across your neighborhood so that we can get it to the coast and send it to Portugal? On the, on the renewable side, although I'd, I'd frame this more as on the consumer-focusing side, it is really, really hard to build a transmission wire in this country. Um, if all we did was make it as easy to build a transmission wire as it is to build a natural gas pipeline, um, our work would be done. Right, give give FERC sole source authority the way they have for 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 natural gas pipelines, and we could solve a ton of problems. But it is made more difficult by the fact that in the transmission sector, there's a huge conflict of economic interest between one end of the wire and the other. Um, if I want to build a gas pipeline, I want to get the gas to market. The person on the other end of the market wants to display something more expensive, and we don't want to get that pipeline built. On the other hand, if I want to build a transmission wire that brings $30 a megawatt hour power from Iowa into a $70 market uh, in in Chicago, folks who own assets in Chicago that can't make money below $60 a megawatt hour also have the ability to block that project from coming online because they're the ones who hold the keys to the interconnection kingdom. And Mm -hmm. so there's a huge economic conflict of interest innate to the way we regulate transmission. And you know, our view, myself and Mike Levin have this bill we've been working on, but our view is that the three Ps of permitting reform in order are profit incentives, participation, and then permitting. Get the profit incentives right so that everybody has a vested interest in the same outcome. Get the participation right. And then the permitting issue is pretty easy. But that's a different question for oil and gas that's really at this point about building out export facilities, um, because that's where the growth is. And, um, and I, I, I take your point that that's not always the way that the, the characterization is in the media, but
2: I think that's the reality of the tension we all feel on the ground when we speak to our constituents. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask a question about the IRA. Um, one of the questions I get um, from clients, and th- this actually comes from a lot of non-US clients, is there's this fear that if a Republican wins the White House, uh, the IRA is going to be somewhat called dismantled, scaled back and so forth. My, my own point is, is that my own viewpoint is, I think that'd be extremely difficult. But my question to you is, is if you think about it a little bit differently, if President Biden wins a second term, do you want him to go even further than what the IRA provided? What could the Biden administration's second term do in terms of furthering infrastructure needs for climate change and uh, new, uh, new energy uh, uh, facilities and so forth like that?
0: Well, so to the first part of your question, I agree with you, it would be hard to repeal. And that's partly because we we very intentionally designed the IRA to be very long on carrots and very short on sticks. Um, it's easy to repeal a stick because everybody who's on the receiving end of that stick is advocating for its repeal. It's hard to repeal a carrot because everybody who's on the receiving end of that carrot is saying, I want to keep this program in place. And so those you know those 10 years of tax credits and incentives and the fact that these manufacturing plants are being built all over the country, Um, is good. And it's, and by the way, those ones that are being built are now giving people access to cheaper energy and people kind of like cheaper energy. So I think it's, I'm not worried about the durability in another administration. Um, To your, um, to the second point, we've got to do more. Um, I mean, I I tell my leftiest Democrats that it is appropriate to do a touchdown dance in the end zone after you score, but until the game is over, um, don't pop the champagne. And the IRA, which is the biggest climate bill ever passed by any government anywhere, will lead to a 40% reduction in CO2 emissions in the US, which is 60% less than is scientifically necessary. Um, And I've I've had this conversation with the president. As long as what's scientifically necessary exceeds what's politically possible, our work isn't done. Um, What I would like to see done and what I wish we could have gotten done in the last package is the policy to support the IRA. What, what we had recommended out of the Climate Committee that I served on for my first two terms was a whole series of reforms. You had about 700 recommendations, of which I think about 350 are now law. So that's a really big deal, and most of them became law in the IRA. The 350 that didn't become law were the ones that would have made the policy reforms that were necessary to, to implement the IRA. And we couldn't do that because of the structural issues in the Senate that forced this into a reconciliation process, where unless it was impacting government revenue, we couldn't affect it. And, you know, things like permitting, if, if we can do things that cost the government no money, but put more money in the pockets of the American people, that doesn't pass the parliamentarian muster to be a, a a budgetary item, right? And so a whole host of those policy reforms. How do we make sure that we have the labor markets necessary to build this all out? How do we make sure um, that we have the permitting reform to get there? How do we? What does U.S. industrial policy look like in a world where? We're we're no longer digging things out of the ground, but we want to make sure that we protect those resources. But we do need to build assets that are going to run for 20 or 30 years before we need to be replaced. Those are policy questions. And we had a lot of good solutions to those. A lot of those were in the Build Back Better before it got stripped down to the IRA. And so, you know, we need a cooperative Senate that's not you know governed by um, by the parliamentarian. Um, but scientifically, we have to do more.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to corporate, you know, some of our corporate clients a lot and, you know, usually they, they reflect, reflexively hate any kind of, um, you know, any regulation coming out of DC, but they all almost universally love the IRA. Um, you know, what it's allowed them to do on the supply side. Um, you know, the one, one complaint I do here is more, you know, it doesn't do enough on the demand side. And I, you know, it seems to me like there's, there's more work definitely to be done there. Yeah, no, quite, quite agree. Great. So, just taking the other side of that trade, um, you know, if if we, um, you know, if we do have a change in administrations, um, you know, we've heard about the so-called Project Twenty Twenty Five from the Heritage Foundation, basically a, a blueprint to dismantle U.S. climate policy. Um, not looking to get into specific, specifics, but uh, is there a risk that major changes to the rules every four or eight years just makes it more difficult for private enterprise to navigate? The climate transition.
0: Um, look, I think you know. You mentioned Project Twenty Twenty Five. It is deeply frightening that you know that one major political party in the United States is talking about essentially completely dismantling all of the expertise at all the agencies that we rely on to be non-political. Um, this is beyond just climate. This is this is how you destroy American government as we know it. And I'm not being hyperbolic. Um, we can pretend climate change isn't real. Doesn't make it not real. Um, I so I look. I'm I'm really frightened about that, and it scares the Dickens out of me that it has become so partisan to acknowledge that the laws of thermodynamics are real, to acknowledge that you know the analysis of Exxon's engineers 30 years ago was accurate, that Svante Arrhenius in the 1880s or whatever you know made accurate predictions. Like all oh, that we know, this stuff is true, right? Yeah, it's partisan yeah. and it's scary. Um, but we have to keep working. I take a small amount of comfort from the fact that the bulk of the transition that we have already made to a decarbonized society has been led by markets, not by governments. Give, give people a choice between paying not paying for electricity or paying for electricity. They don't have to think very long give them a choice between a car that you don't have to take to the gas station and has three second acceleration and doesn't have any maintenance expenses and one with the opposite, they don't have to think very long. Um, Now we have to make sure they have the capital to do that. But, you know, why is the coal industry dying in America? It's because it can't compete economically. Um, right? Um, Right. And so, you know, why are EVs the fastest growing vehicle segment? Because they're more fun to drive and increasingly they're more affordable. Um, we now generate more power from renewables than we do from coal, and I don't think those market pressures are going to go away because at the end of the day, price does win. Um, now we've got externalities we don't price. We, you know, we could we could win faster, but I but I th- I don't sweat too much about whether or not. We are going to go back to coal being fifty percent of the U.S. power grid. Um, get rid of combined cycles and take the nuclear fleet back to forty percent capacity factor. You know, <laughs> which is basically the world in nineteen
1: ninety-five. Um, right. And you alluded to to European regulation, and certainly, I mean, touching on um, this conversation, you know, it it's definitely not a partisan or it's not nearly as much a partisan issue there. Um, you've seen it become maybe slightly more so recently but um you know it's the europeans are really kind of at least you know nathan and i were talking about this the other day at least you know 10 years you know opt, um you know conservatively ahead of us in terms of climate regulation um and again you know a lot of these rules are going to apply to a number of us companies doing business in the eu anyway um but then at the same time, we hear from some of your Republican colleagues that there's there's no sense in doing anything as long as China and India continue to increase their emissions. So do you think we're ever going to get a, a global consensus on climate and ESG policy and what role should the US play in that?
0: So when, when the US pulled out of Paris, I was part of the, we had a 12 person US delegation to Madrid at COP25. Um, and I was proud to be a member of that delegation. I was also embarrassed that there were only 12 of us. And one of the comments that was made from one of the Europeans we were with at the time was he he pulled us aside as we were between sessions and he said, you know, he said, I cannot stress enough that really bad things happen when the United States doesn't lead and we need you to lead. Um, You know, there's a whole lot of layers to that conversation in Europe, of course, but we can sit back and wait for Brussels to act We can sit back and say, well, if China's not going to act, we're not going to act. But at the end of the day, that's the opposite of leadership. And my own experience, you know, why are people building aluminum plants in Iceland? It's not because they're trying to boost their ESG score. It's because Iceland has really cheap electricity and you can make much more competitive aluminum if you build it in Iceland. Why do people build, uh, you know, silicon refining plants in the United States next to hydroelectric dams? It's it's not because they care about the climate, right? It's because it's cheap, right? They, right? they want to have it there. And so and so my view is this is a this is a non this is making a win-win conversation a zero-sum conversation in very unproductive ways. If China doesn't want to invest in cheaper energy, fine. We'll invest in it here and we will kick their ass. Because all that manufacturing is gonna, you know, the energy-intensive manufacturing is gonna to want to come back here. And, and we know that that's the case because every time we build cheap, you know, where, where, do, where does energy intensive manufacturing goes? It goes where the cheap energy goes. And energy, you know, you said you were an oil trader. Energy ultimately prices down to the lowest marginal cost supplier. That's true in the oil sector. It's true in the gas sector. It's certainly true in the electric sector. As we are building out a ton of zero marginal cost sources of energy production in the United States, the price of energy is going to come down. It's going to make it harder to make money as an energy producer, but it's going to be to the benefit of everybody who wants cheap, cheap energy. That's a really, really good problem to have. Um, and we have the opportunity in the United States to play a leadership role should we choose to take it. Um, and I think in many ways, it's easier for us to lead than it is for, for Europe to lead because Europe, Europe is not blessed with the same degree of domestic fossil resources that we are. And so, as a result, I think if we can find a way in the United States to lead that gives a way for everybody to win, I think we can go to Europe and say, "Okay, we've got a way to make this work that doesn't destabilize the, your neighbor to the east," which is a big <laughs> concern over there, right? Um, because we don't want to destabilize West Virginia or the Gulf Coast.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I, I think um, you know, focusing on the the win win conversation, I think, is really important. Uh, you mentioned COP. You know, there was a story about. Last year's COP, uh, a, a Republican governor from one of your neighboring states was there and was actually booed by his own party because he was trying to drum up business and opportunities from the climate transition. And that, to me, again, is kind of mind blowing that that you you know you'd want to turn away business opportunities, um, you know, ways to benefit off of this. But um, sticking on COP, um, turning to this year's COP 28, uh, it's going to be hosted by the UAE. Uh, will be presided over by the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Now, uh, you signed a letter asking the administration to use diplomatic pressure to change that. Uh, do you not think that national oil companies should have a seat at the table in discussing these issues?
0: Um, it's not that I think they don't have a seat at the table, but I think we need to be honest about the tensions. The you don't make in a in a world where all we care about is providing energy to people. The oil companies, the electric utilities, they're in the business of providing energy today. If they can provide cheaper, more reliable, cleaner energy in the future, of course, have a seat at that table. Um, at the same time, I don't think we should delude ourselves into thinking that the margins in the oil industry come from the retail station or from the refining sector, right? But the margins in that industry are all at the upstream level. If, mm-hmm. if you have access to a well with $9 lifting costs and it's a $70 market, you make a lot of money. You don't make a lot of money at the gas station <laughs> um, right? right and and i think the challenge that we have with uh, with both the oil, the oil majors and with the countries whose economies depend on oil production is that they're not they're, their the core talent is not in meeting the needs of their customers their core talent is digging stuff out of the ground and putting it into a pipeline where somebody else can deal with the customer facing end of it and I don't know how they have a role in that market with the talents that they have. I'd love them to be there, but, you know, but at the end of the day, who's really leading the transition, who's meeting customers where they are. Um, Mm. And when markets are only pricing ExxonMobil at what, seven times earnings, they're telling you, you don't know how to provide consumers what they want in this changing world. We're, 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 we're we're investing in you in a cash stripping operation at this point. And, And I think, and I think the longer we put that off, you know, and tell a story that this is a transition, but we're putting people in charge who have a vested interest in maintaining it in perpetuity, we're not being honest with ourselves.
2: So be- before the podcast, Rob and I were talking about what, how difficult the questions we should end up with. And so <laughs> we're going to ask you a really difficult question. You know, we read that you were in a Beasties Boys video beastie boys video is that true and if so can you just tell us exactly how it went down and how it felt to be there (laughs) so uh it is true and i will put a
0: challenge to your listeners that if any of you can find me in the clip and send it i would be proud so what went down was we went to a uh i was in high school it was the license to ill tour um the uh, Beastie Boys, the opening act for the Beastie Boys was Murphy's Law. The opening act for Murphy's Law was a little band that nobody had ever heard of called Public Enemy. It was a heck of a show, Newark, New Jersey.
2: Oh, wow,
1: wow.
0: And and the uh, I think uh, Fight for Your Right to Party was just blown up on the list during that. And so that the Beastie Boys were now having to record videos. And so Ad Rock came out and said, We're going to record, we're going to play Rhyming and Stealing like six times because we need a ton of B roll. for the video. And so they literally played the song rhyming and stealing, for those of you who know it, six times and there was a ton of b-roll. And all of us, of course, went home once the video came out, you know, a couple months later we all pull on MTV. And the and I assure you that, you know, 16-year-old me was able to spot me and all my friends in the audience and we were in the crowd chat. I did recently go and try to find the old video and I don't know if I don't remember what 16 year old me looked like or I just uh, <laughs> it was hard for me to uh, remember what my wardrobe was that I knew to look. Oh, I knew I was wearing that T-shirt at the time. Um, but it's one of the crowd pan shots that, a, you, know, a, uh, uh, you know, a very a very young, very skinny version of me uh, is in that crowd shot back then uh, in well, New York, New Jersey.
2: As soon as this podcast ends, we will get the Bloomberg data scientists on it and see if we can excellent,
1: get it. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Uh, because Ryman and Steven, what it's all about, as they say.
1: I can't quite top that, but uh, there's definitely footage of me for our, our listeners of uh, MTV Spring Break uh, 2001, I want to say. Oh, excellent. Uh, there, you might be able to find me dancing on a, a yacht with uh, as uh, Ja Rule is performing. As one does. Yeah, it makes out there. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you kind of have to, right?
0: <laughs> Terrific. We're, we're all minor celebrities in our way. <laughs>
1: absolutely well thank you very much for your time um and you know continue uh doing the great work you're doing in dc do you love elon musk do
0: you hate elon musk do you have no idea what to think about
1: elon musk then we have just a show for you